Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our smartphone app, or at the website SupChina.com. We offer original reporting and perspectives on a huge range of China-related topics, from the Belt and Road to the environment, from the latest online phenomena to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am at the Fletcher School at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts, where our guest today teaches. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is the former potty-mouthed prince of Peking punditry, now the nebbishly nattering nefarious nabob of Nashville negativity, part hillbilly, part <laughs> whining New Yorker, part kind of product of apartheid South Africa, whose daily emanations are read with terror every day by both Wang Qishan and Stephen Miller. Huh? It's c- congratulations to you, Jeremy. That is a rare feat to piss off both people on a daily Thank you. I, you know, I think the only part that's true is Nashville and Nebishi. But anyway. Uh. <laughs> I, I love the word Nebish because, you know, it sounds like an adjective, but it's a noun and it's just, it's just a terrific word. Uh, it makes me wish I were Jewish. Shlemiel, Nebish, yeah, we have great words for kind of unglamorous slobs in Yiddish. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Jeremy, what are the basic driving motive forces behind China's foreign policy? How do naval buildups, artificial islands, air defense identification zones, massive outlays for Belt and Road projects, you know, bases in Djibouti, trade negotiations with the U.S., standoffs on the Duckland Plateau, and the jailing of Canadians. How do all these things relate? Is there, in fact, one unified field theory that explains everything the Chinese leadership does in foreign policy? And are there antecedents and clear continuities with what the leadership of the PRC has done previously? Is there, in other words, a grand strategy that we can articulate and that can help us to understand Beijing's actions? Our guest today thinks so. Sulman Wasif Khan is Assistant Professor of International History and Chinese Foreign Relations at the Fletcher School. He's the author of the book Haunted by Chaos, China's Grand Strategy from Mao Zedong to Xi Jinping, published last year. It describes a Chinese foreign policy motivated by insecurity and fear, and a leadership in which memories of warlordism, of civil war, of foreign invasion, and of domestic chaos loom large even now. It's this insecurity rather than strength and confidence that is the salient determinant of China's posture in the world. Uh, I I believe that. I've been eager to talk to you, Solman, for quite some time, so I'm glad this finally worked out. And welcome to Seneca, and thanks for having us here. Thank you for having me. I'll try not to natter too much, but we'll see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) I think you've been given uh, advanced permission by Kaiser's introduction. I gathered. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, can we start with a basic definition? What is grand strategy and what are some examples of grand strategies that other nation states have taken up? Great. Um, So by grand strategy in the book, I meant the bringing together of different categories of power, diplomatic, economic, military, to pursue overarching national goals. And I think it's here important to say what grand strategy is not. It's not the way the punditocracy often talks about the news. Um, The Russians have done X in Syria, so what do we do now? The Chinese are investing gazillions of dollars in Latin America. What do we do now? But more a sense of what do we want in the world? Um, How does what's happening in the world affect what we want? And based on that, how does what's happening translate into something we should or should not care about? And what do we do about it? So something bigger than the day-to-day natterings, as it were, of the news. Examples of other people who've had grand strategies, um, the United States had a grand strategy of containment that varied during the Cold War. George W. Bush had a grand strategy of bringing democracy to the world, proof positive that you can have a grand strategy and still have a really bad one. (laughs) And then there's the China case, where it is about securing the state using every tool of power available to you. Okay, great. Uh Solma, does grand strategy have to be something that is articulated and something about which a state's civilian and military leadership is consciously aware? 
That was the interesting thing about the China case. So most studies of grand strategy to date have assumed that it is something that's articulated and you'll see it written down somewhere or the case for it made as it was by Pericles in Athens, for sure. example. The China case, interestingly enough, you see something that looks like a grand strategy. There does seem to be this overarching national objective. There is a sense in which the different categories of power that we just talked about were calibrated to achieve that overarching national objective. But you don't get it articulated that often, um, if at all. There's no George Kennan of of There does not, at least in the declassified material I have seen, appear to have been a George Kennan. It is something that, as Deng Xiaoping might have said, we came across in our encounters with reality. Um, Mm. But for all that, it works very much like a grand strategy, and therefore I felt comfortable saying it can be something felt, something instinctive, as much as something articulated and written down. Great. Um, Sulman, before we get into uh, what you believe China's grand strategy uh, to consist of, I want to ask you a little bit about the research for this book. Mm -hmm. Um, You had the chance to take rare advantage of a brief opening of the archive of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Mm -hmm. What were the circumstances of the archive's opening? Why was it suddenly closed again? And uh, perhaps most importantly, what were some of the really juicy things you managed to unearth while you had access? That was a wonderful time um, for China scholars, and um, I still look back on it very fondly. It's the one archive I've been to where I've been castigated for not wearing a coat in the cold and had a PLA overcoat thrust on my shoulders before (laughs) I left. Um, I was told I had to eat watermelon when I was working there in the summer because otherwise I would, I don't know what they thought would happen to me, but it was important that I eat the watermelon. I ate the watermelon. Yeah, I'm I'm sure you would shanghua. That was the argument. I wasn't buying it, but I ate the watermelon (laughs) because that's what you do. Uh, The archives opened up thanks to the efforts of Chinese historians. Um, These were people who were proficient in Russian and had gone and done work on Cold War history in the archives of the former Soviet Union. Very good work, actually. And they had come back to their government, and this was the way Cold War historians work in gen- worked in general at the time and still do with other places, saying, we're going to write this history on the basis of the materials we have found in these other archives. Don't Sulman, you- can I, may I interrupt? Mm-hmm. Could you just give us a date? Where, where, when are we talking about? We're talking about circa... So the Soviet archives opened up after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. China scholars started working seriously with that material in the mid to late 90s. Um, I visited the archives for the first time in 2005, by which time, if memory serves, they'd been open for a year, though I'm not quite sure about that. It's that golden age, Jeremy. Yeah. It, the golden age of liberalism under it, who and when. It yeah. is the golden age. So they opened up the archives based on people saying, we're going to tell the story, and it's important that China's perspective on this be heard. Um, and sure enough, it was important. There are Chinese documents there that you know shed a very different light on the Korean War, the Sino-Soviet split, what have you, and that researchers were very fortunate to use. The initial tranche of declassification went all the way till 1959 or 1960. And there was then a second wave a few years subsequent to that that went all the way to 65-66, at which point, of course, the paper trail went cold. So I was fortunate enough to sit there and take notes and use the archives pretty much as much as I wanted, till around 2012, when I found that many of the materials that one would have liked to use had been reclassified, and with no explanation of when they might be open for researchers again. The why it happened is an interesting question, and there are several different theories floating around about this. Uh, My favorite answer being, it's all of the above, I'll give them all to you. Um, One was that it was part of this general tightening that China was going through at the time, and that that was something that was going to affect the archives much as it had affected other aspects of society. The second theory, which several Chinese friends gave me, was that Xi Jinping didn't like historians. Uh, Not the nihilists, anyway. (laughs) Not the nihilists, anyway. By that, incidentally, he didn't mean people like me, whose work you know, was not necessarily well-known in China outside a few circles, but Chinese historians who were drawing upon the stuff and teaching students based on it. So that was one theory. And then the third one had to do with 
a Japanese journalist found a document in the archives that referred to the Senkaku Islands as opposed to the Diaoyu Islands Uh and published this in a Japanese newspaper. Now, if you actually look at the document, it doesn't give weight to the claim one way or another. You look at Chiang Kai-shek's diary. He's also got a reference to the Senkakus as opposed to the Diaoyu. But you have to remember that this was at a time when people had different names for different places. That's not in and of itself a position on where does sovereignty reside. But that seems to have been enough for people to say, okay, the declassification has got out of hand. Time to tighten up. And the archives were closed. So do you have a theory that you favor? I think it's all of the above. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I think mean, all those things make sense. That so, makes sense yeah. to me. That, that year, I mean, September 2012 was when the Tokyo government, mm-hmm. you know, nationalized mm-hmm. right uh, the islands, and yeah, yeah it, was, it, it all kind of came together in that crazy year, which was, I mean, somebody's got to write a book yeah. about 2012. What a year! Anyway, uh, Solomon, lay out if you can what the contours of China, Chinese grand strategy actually are. I mean, what, especially, what endures across this, what, nearly 90-year period from the Jiangxi Soviet all the way to the present. And, and I think that's what's really interesting about your book is that you, you see these continuities. So mm-hmm. what are the contours of it? So we said grand strategy was the integration of different categories of power to pursue an overarching objective. And the overarching objective that seems to have held true throughout has been securing the state. That's the basic goal. Now, that sounds kind of banal at first glance, but And here's what endures. All these people have a memory of the state not being secure, one way or another. Whether you are remembering the warlord era, whether you are looking back on the cultural revolution, whether you are thinking of Tiananmen Square, um, whether you're thinking of revolutions in Eastern Europe and what they mean, just about every Chinese leader has been haunted by the idea of the state falling apart. And that sense of history is something that has endured across the ages. The other thing that endures, of course, um, and we tend to take this for granted, is geography. Yeah. So all these people are dealing with a country. It sounds really basic when you put it this way, but, you know, it's different if you're an American. It's all these people are dealing with a country where there are long, vulnerable land frontiers and a very long, very porous coast from which they've faced invasion. That gives you a very different view of the world from the grand strategist in charge of a country that has three oceans, Canada and Mexico, for neighbors. Right. So that's one of the enduring things, too. So you've made clear what you believe China's grand strategy is. I suppose I'm more interested in hearing what you believe others have gotten wrong, what isn't, but has been claimed to be China's grand strategy. Yeah, I think this is important, especially now. So the claim you hear most often is China is out to overthrow the liberal world order without very clear definitions of what the liberal world order might be, but don't let that stand in the way. I thought that was Trump's grand strategy. I It depends on whom you ask. <laughs> so it's the same. <laughs> it is the same. Maybe Trump and Xi can come together over this eventually. But you know, China's benefited from aspects of what people call the liberal world order, and those have helped secure the state. It has no intention of overthrowing it. And it's um, conscious of this. It's conscious of this, too. Um, China is out to establish global hegemony. Um, that might happen by accident right. if it's something that is felt crucial to Chinese security. But it wouldn't in and of itself be the overarching goal that drives them. Um, China is out to overtake the United States. Yes, that would be nice, but much more important is securing the Chinese state. So the the aggression and ambition often ascribed to Chinese grand strategy by people is, I think, missing some of the hauntedness that these leaders felt. And that's what I think I'm trying to get right in the book. I'd like to ask a, a kind of a dumb question from a layperson um, in, in terms of understanding the difference between uh, Chinese grand strategy and other theories that look at uh, the way the Chinese leadership thinks Mm -hmm. and the way it's influenced by the past. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking in particular, we last week uh, talked to Howard French, Mm -hmm. um, who's written a book that looks at, I I guess, the way China's imperial past Mm -hmm. may be reflected in the way it behaves currently. Mm -hmm. Um, How does... um, you know, your theory of Chinese grand strategy relates to theories like that. That, that invokes Tianxia. Mm-hmm. And, and this. No, I mean, I think Howard is careful. I, mean, I don't think mm-hmm. either Jeremy or I think that he really necessarily overdid it, but he looks to an even more mm-hmm. distant past. 
So that's the idea of national rejuvenation, right, um, that people have talked about a lot. China is trying to restore a China-centric Asia order um, is the way that that book often gets interpreted. I think there's a couple of things to talk about there. First of all, China's imperial past is actually, it's much less grand than is than it's typically considered to be. So the tribute system is actually not tributes in misleading word in many senses because the way tribute works is it's a set of trading relationships. Right, right. Um, these are the rituals and things you go through if you want to trade with China, and it's cheaper to do that than to go to war. You and get trade, a three x return apparently. There that you was, go. That was the typical, yeah, yeah. Um, but it works for people. Um, the empire, China's empire, is at different point had different security threats at various points. It wasn't an Asia centric order, so simply imposing one version of the imperial past on. China's millennia of history and saying this is the way it's always been seems to me to be a little misguided. What does strike me from the imperial past, though, is disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. If you think about the Taiping Rebellion, for example, if you think about the Opium Wars, these are things that I think Chinese leaders still look to in the imperial past and worry about. The stories of the Opium Wars have never actually left the consciousness of the leadership, or Chinese people for that matter. And that's important to remember. Yeah. So let's update, let's go uh, a little forward in time to Mao Zedong. Mm -hmm. Um, You give quite a lot of emphasis uh, to the good chairman in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, How does the Mao Zedong in your pages emerge as a different kind of strategist from the Mao of other accounts? And, you know, perhaps we could say from the conventional wisdom on Mao. So... This was one of the more disturbing things to do in the book, trying to see the world through Mao's eyes, which um, was a discomfitting experience in many ways. <laughs> um, the Mao we know now, and not wrongly, I should emphasize, is a nasty person who butchered tens of millions of his own citizens and plunged China into chaos. That's not incorrect. Uh, The Great Leap Forward was a tragic thing he inflicted on China. The Cultural Revolution, the same thing. Um, The earlier periods of political infighting and the victims that took, um, so wonderfully documented by Frank DeCotter, for example. That's all true. The issue, though, is that you can do horrible things and still be a shrewd grand strategist. Uh, Mao can inflict the Great leap forward in the tra- and the cultural revolution on his people, he can still wind up with a China more secure than it was before he took over. And that was something I was trying to restore, saying there is that side to him too. So simply saying Mao was a grand strategist um, was an important part of the book. The military aspects of Mao's strategy seem to have been fairly well understood. When the enemy advances, we retreat. When the enemy retreats, we advance. We're fish swimming through a sea of people. The diplomatic aspects of it, Mao's capacity to understand the balance of power, to work with Japan, the Soviet Union, the United States, his capacity to win support from different ethnic groups within China, long forgotten. These are things that are important, though. Hmm. Other thing that's worth noting about him is he has an understanding of the economy being important. Um, one of the keys to his victory in the Civil War, not the only key, but one of them, is that he thinks about political economy. Um, he doesn't have to be an economic genius. He just has to manage things a little better than Chiang Kai-shek does, and he seems to have done that fairly right. effectively. Hyperinflation in that time. I've yeah. heard all sorts of stories growing up about that. The other thing about the Great Leap Forward, of course, is that stems from an insight similar to the one Deng had later on. Um, Mao's take on the Great Leap Forward is we have to do this as a matter of national survival. You can't have modern defense and a modern military um, without a modern economy, which means modern industry, modern agriculture. So this is a national security plan. Now, the way he implements it is completely wrongheaded. He's allowed to persist in that, by the way, because of the support from cadres such as Zhao Ziyang, who's saying it's just the implementation that's at fault. But that basic insight that you need economic strength for national security is one that's not wrong, and it's one that's worth remembering if we're to truly understand the Great Leap Forward. So by the time Mao dies, he has left China united, which when he starts out thinking about this circa 1920 is not a given by any stretch of imagination. He has faced down the United States and the Soviet Union and clashes. 
Um, he's also killed tens of millions of his own people and created political chaos in Beijing. So it's a mixed record, but the positives as well as the negatives are important to understand. So you spent a lot of time in the early chapters of your book on the Civil War, both mm-hmm. before and, and after the war with Japan. Uh, what does the party's strategy during the Civil War illustrate about, you know, more overarching grand strategy? Is Mao already at that point implementing sort of balance? I mean, it seems very much to me that he, he, he is, especially in the Yunnan period. Mm-hmm. So this was accidental. I didn't intend to spend that much time on the Civil War. It was just something about delving into sources that made me say I should go deeper into this. Uh, the first thing to say about the Civil War period is that grand strategy is evolving. Um, you can almost see it at the genesis over there. They're still working out what's going to happen. Mao at this point still isn't – it's his rise to power, but he's still first among equals, not the supreme leader. A right. uh, couple of things are notable about this period that I would emphasize. Um, first of all, simply insisting the Jiangxi Soviet's a state um, – is quite a revolutionary act, if you think about sure. it. In the way that ISIS was. Exactly. Right, right. But it's this patch of land that he has within this larger thing that's called China that, according to him, doesn't really exist. And he's insisting he has the right to levy taxes. He can do foreign relations. He is not going to give up his troops. When the Soviet is lost, you can take the state traveling. Um, de Gaulle's France comes to mind here and still insist you're the legitimate government of this particular patch of land. Um, that is something that's crucial to the Civil War and holding on to that notion. From that comes the notion of diplomacy, um, both towards groups within what we think of as China now. Various and to warlords. People Various warlords, Tibetans. Sure. Um, and other ethnic groups. And yeah. other ethnic yeah. groups. Um, interesting thing about this period is that he promises them self-determination down the line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he'll change his mind about that. But at the time, it seems to have been sincere, which if you think about it, is not altogether wrongheaded because he has started out not knowing where China's boundaries really should be set. So that's the other thing. Um, Diplomacy with ethnic groups and warlords. Uh, Diplomacy with foreign states. Um, As late as 1941, willing to contemplate working with pro-Japanese forces to balance against Chiang Kai-shek. Rather surprising when you think about the myth of the United Front. Right, specifically, let's get drilled down on that a little yep. bit. What did he do? Who did he reach out to? Was he talking to the Wang Jingwei or was he? Um, that bit doesn't, the archives don't go there, as you can suspect. Um, specifics on that particular aspect are hard to come by. He throws this out as a suggestion that maybe we should work with pro-Japanese forces. There are Japanese intelligence agents who meet with communist officials. That's as far as the story goes. Yeah, it's um, in Rana's book. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. Beyond that, though, you would need to wait probably for the opening of the Central Party archives, right. which is probably not going to Never happen in the near future. <laughs> not at least. Party's still in yeah. power. Yeah. Uh, Japan has been an excellent source over here, and there's some wonderful Japanese memoirs about people talking to Chinese communist officials. But how far that goes is anyone's guess. Um, Sulman, what lessons from the uh, Korean War and the 1950s more broadly are uh, applicable today? The Korean War was one of the things that started me off on the book because back when, I'm not sure if he's a problem again or not, but back when Kim was a major problem for us testing nuclear weapons left, right, and center, um, it was fascinating how often you could go on the TV and hear people saying, um, we are not going to get any movement on North Korea till the Chinese get serious about it. <laughs> when will China get serious about North Korea? We expect China to get serious about North Korea. We're working very hard to get the Chinese to be serious about North Korea. And I think at a certain point, I just lost patience and cursed the television and said, you don't get it. Um, North Korea is just part of a larger problem for China. In other words, serious discussions about North Korea aren't really on the table unless a whole broader conversation about Taiwan, the East China Sea, the South China Sea, China's place in the world, basically, is going to be on the table because this is about much more than just this isolated piece of territory. Again, grand strategy. How does what's happening in the world affect what we see? And that was very much a part of your book, talking about how Taiwan, especially in North Mm -hmm. Korea, were linked very firmly in in Mao's mind. In Mao's mind very early on. And when I said that to the TV, I realized, oh, This is something that was similar to, though not identical to, what was happening in the Mao years. Uh, The decision-making on Korea, and Chen Jian was um, very useful in digging up documents on this. His Mao's China and the Cold War was Mm -hmm, the first, mm -hmm. first book I know of that emphasized the full dimensions of this. The decision-making on Korea is not a given, 
Mao wants to intervene in Korea, not for reasons of grand strategy necessarily, but for reasons of romanticism. Our Korean brothers fought with us in the Civil War. It goes hard on the heart to let them suffer now before the ravaging Americans. And he's not quite carrying the day with his comrades in the Politburo. People are tired of fighting. They think the economy's a mess. This isn't something we want to get into. And it takes Peng Dehuai coming back in, and he has to get there and make the case saying, look, you cannot have a hostile power on your northeastern frontier and in the Taiwan Strait, and expect to hold on to the state you've worked that hard to secure. That's the movement, that, that's the, those are the words that get the Chinese into the Korean War, really. Peng had been recalled from the Western Frontier. That's right, that point, um, right, specifically right. to make that case, it appears. Um, so if you think about Korea today, that overarching sense of security is very much part of what China wants to know before it makes a serious move on the North Korean problem. There's other issues with North Korea today that are somewhat different from that time, which we can talk about if you want to. But that basic sense of where Korea fits in the geostrategic map is very much alive. The other thing from Korea is our ability to, to understand Chinese signaling, mm-hmm. which was notably absent before China crossed the Alu uh, while when we advanced north of the 38th parallel. Uh, we seem to ignore a lot of what, in hindsight, or at least in, in Alan Whiting's reading of it, should have been very clear signals. Uh, what Have we gotten better at, at reading Beijing? I don't know if we've got better. Um, it's kind of painful to say this, but we might have got worse in some ways. Um, Korea, at least, we have the excuse that MacArthur is making a lot of the decisions at the time. Right. Um, Korea today, I think it's harder in some ways, in fairness to people reading signals, because I think there's a raging debate within China about what to do about it. One aspect of North Korea from the Chinese perspective is, here's this country that's a thorn in the side of the U.S., which is always talking about how it wants to keep us down and what it will take to go to war with China. Um, So as long as the North Koreans are a pain in the American neck, really, who cares? That's one view of the matter. The other view of the matter, um, and both these are reasonable, is we have a nut job with nukes loose on our northeastern frontier. Or in, in, in the Beltway, too, we've got one. There you go. <laughs> so which of those is the bigger problem? <laughs> um, every now and then, Kim will threaten to turn his nukes on China. Yeah, um, That's yeah. been known to happen. So really, what do you do about that? And you go from seeing North Korea as a strategic asset to possibly the most immediate threat there is. Which one of those views holds sway in Beijing eventually remains to be seen. But I think that's important to think about when thinking about Korea today. Very good, very good. Uh, You clearly see a lot of continuities in China's grand strategy. Uh, That's what's, I think, special about your book. Um, This sticks out for me, I think, because it stands in such stark contrast to the way others might tell the story more conventionally in a way that sort of emphasizes a periodization sort of breaks and mm-hmm. most notably sort of the break in the post-Mao period mm-hmm. that uh, Dung inaugurates this new uh, era of grand strategy. And, you know, he, he, he very much uses this, this, this idea of, of hide and bide, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can, you, can you talk about why you emphasize the continuity rather than what I, I still believe are some pretty important breaks from, from that? There are some important breaks. Um, I think the way I put it in the book was they struck me as variations on a theme, not a fundamental departure from a theme itself. The continuity is security. Um, that goal doesn't change. Keep China safe. And Deng is very much all about that. Opening and reform is something that's meant to keep China safe. And Deng's very clear about that, too. So the use of economics to secure the state, mm-hmm. um, he gets it right where yeah, Mao didn't, um, which is important. But that basic idea is the same. It's also worth remembering that the opening part of opening and reform, at least, um, in terms of opening up to the outside world with trade, is something that happens towards the tail end of the Mao years, sure, 71 sure. to 76. China is open for business, and you're seeing the Chinese economy change dramatically as a result. That's the period when Japan starts doing a lot of these infrastructure projects mm-hmm. in China. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, in the Deng years, they're going to go full scale. So that's a continuity right there. 
the idea of the balance of power, staying closer to other great powers than they are to one another, that's something that carries over from the Mao years. The idea of it being important that the party stays strong, which is something Deng emphasizes a lot more because he has to, um, that's still there. So there are a lot of continuities. But Sulman, you don't, some reviewer had pointed out, really discuss uh, Tao Guang, Yang Hui, the hide and bide strategy. Um, why not? Well, I've been slammed a lot for this. In retrospect, I'm wondering if I should have. Um, the honest answer was it, was it had been discussed so much that I felt there was nothing more to say about it. Uh, um, <laughs> lots of people have said Deng said hide and bide, and that's what China did. So what more is there to say, really? I found it boring enough not to go into it too much. I think if I just stuck a line in there saying he said that, I'd probably have been better off. <laughs> that said, um, hide and bide really doesn't begin to sum up what he's up to. If you think about the sheer scale of economic change going on there, it's kind of hard to keep that hidden. If you think about, this is, this is a departure from grand strategy, but if you think about the debacle in Vietnam... It's kind of hard to keep hidden. If you think about how he's almost like a kid when it comes to one country, two systems, and joint development, um, how much he brags about those to anybody who'll listen, um, that's not hide and buy. Right. If you're sitting across the strait in Taiwan... And you ain't seeing a lot of hiding or biting. You're yeah. not seeing a lot of hiding and biting. You're seeing this isn't this is something that we really have to think about. You're seeing people you're seeing Taiwanese society divided on do we want to go with a one country, two systems model? This might be our best out, or is this a communist conspiracy to take over Taiwan? And there's a faction in Taiwan that's arguing just that. So hide and bide I get that I should have mentioned it. I think it probably obscures quite a bit that was not very hidden. I would have really enjoyed a chapter where you just repeat what you just said about, you know, why it, it isn't sort of adequate to describe what was happening. I should probably have done that. Tiananmen Square, no hiding and biting there and no apologizing either. That's one of the interesting things after Tiananmen. He's going to stick for it and say, come hell or high water, this is what we did. We did it for a reason. and That's the way it's going to be. No biting. Perhaps we attribute a little too much importance to Deng's kind of nomic utterances. I mean, black and white cat is great. Mm -hmm. Any cat, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. But if the cat wants to subvert the communist party, then the cat is gonna the cat's end up going dead. To, the cat's <laughs> going to go then. Yeah, I think nomic utterances is something we tend to place too much emphasis on when studying China in general. Well, he's kind of gnome-like, right? He so. is kind of gnome-like, but um, <laughs> so with hide and bide or. Um, peaceful rise, national Crossing rejuvenation, river, export the of the China model, feel yeah. for the stones, yeah. journey of a thousand miles. I mean, they're nice slogans to wrap your mind around. And it's comforting for students of grand strategy to say, oh, here's something that actually articulates something that looks like grand strategy. You also have to look at what people do. Right. Right. Um, and in Deng's case, and certainly in the case of a lot of the other, a lot of the other leaders we've talked about, what they say and what they do are sometimes at stark variance. Um, then what do you do? You kind of have to look at what they do, too. There's another gnomic utterance that's misattributed to the Chinese. May you live in interesting times. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what's what's great about the time that, well, Solomon, you and Jeremy and me spent a lot of our times in the, the, the least interesting times. In, mm -hmm. in fact, they were wonderful for that very reason. Mm -hmm. They were they had the virtue, as you title a chapter, of dullness. Mm -hmm. right? We were there in that golden age of, of Hu Jintao, the, the Jiang Zemin years mm -hmm. and the Hu Jintao years. And yeah, there, there was a lot of uh, there were tensions. There was mm -hmm. a lot going on that wasn't dull. Uh, the 95-96 Taiwan Straits mm -hmm. crisis, you know, the Belgrade bombing in May 7th of 99, the EB-3 spy plane incident in early mm -hmm. April of 2001. Uh, but What's the the dull period really starts to set in in the wonderfully dull period after September 11th? I wanted to, to to bounce an idea off of you that that I've sort of honed over the years doing this show, and Jeremy's probably hardly sick of me talking about it. But I am pretty fascinated by what I suspect is a connection between China's sense of its international environment in the six or so years after September 11th mm -hmm. uh, and its domestic policy. And my suspicion is that this relatively liberal open period, yeah, sure. It has a lot to do with this uh, 
deliberately collective leadership with a weak leadership, uh, mm-hmm. unable to be as as iron fisted as as previous or subsequent administrations. But my suspicion is that this l- relatively liberal period with a flourishing public sphere, with uh, all sorts of new NGOs popping up, you know, a really vibrant civil society. Uh, advancing rule of law, all of the stuff that most Americans want to see happening in China, it was happening, and that was happening because, in part, of the relaxed in external environment, uh, that China didn't feel like it was in the U.S. crosshairs, that it, it could sort of relax a bit. I felt like that was consistent with a lot of what you were talking about. It was a period where uh, the grand strategy seemed to be well, it was it was working. China was secure. There were not threats all, all around. Uh, Tibet was quiescent. Xinjiang was relatively quiescent. How much liberalization did you actually see at that time, Kaiser? Just you know, what so were you? Jeremy and I, I think you'd agree, like magazine mm-hmm. kiosks, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know, two thousand and three mm-hmm. was the sort of high points of investigative Probably. journalism in China mm-hmm. with the seven Absolutely. weekly covering Sun Zhigong, and the next few years mm-hmm. after Sun Zhigong, so the expansion mm-hmm. of the internet as a, a, a platform mm-hmm. for people to say what they want. A lot of NGOs mm-hmm. were expanding, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Two thousand seven, yeah. what was blocked in China? I mean, yeah. the New York Times Not wasn't much. blocked, the Wall Street yeah. Journal wasn't blocked, AP wasn't blocked, mm-hmm. Reuters wasn't blocked. Uh, BBC, CNN, nothing was blocked except for the usual suspects, you know, the, the pro-Tibet independence, Taiwan independence sites, Amnesty International. Yeah. It's an interesting question. I I think we might have to look elsewhere for the causes, though, okay. than a sense of security, because you start thinking about it. 2001, there's opportunity to improve your relations with the United States. There's also fear, um, because the United States is loose in Afghanistan. Um, you might be thinking about the Belgrade bombing and saying, what if something like this happens in Xinjiang? They'll call it collateral damage, but what do they really intend vis-a-vis us? You think about the formation of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and what it stands for in terms of multipolarization and getting outsiders out of the region. That's a response that says, yeah, things are better than they were, but they're not necessarily all sereno. If you think about how people on the other side of the Burmese border at the time felt about China. There was quite a bit of wariness. Uh, 2007-2008, you begin to see fears about what the financial crisis is going to mean. Sure, sure. And real panic about that, partly because it's coming at the same time as, perhaps coincidentally, probably not, um, sudden outbreaks of non-quiescence in Xinjiang and Tibet. But... With the financial crisis especially, there's this moment of panic. What are the Americans going to do about it? And you have Hu Jintao, before Xi Jinping, lecturing the Americans on, you cannot walk away from the system of free trade, of aid to the less developed world, of financial liberalization. We all have a stake in this. If you think about relations with Japan during that time, they go up and down. Sure, bad in 2004, but there was a pretty good period. And and cross-straits relations were good too. Bilateral U.S.-China, what were the issues? There was Darfur and the rest of it is like underwire broad dumping cases in the WTO. There was, you know, poisoned pet food and maybe some drywall that had been exported Mm -hmm. to Florida. And uh, that was it, though. I mean, it was really pretty quiet. Well, this is the virtue of being a dull person, right? Right. You look at the problems and you say, they're problems. They're manageable problems. We'll handle them with a moderation of tone that someone who's not dull might not. Um, and, you know, if, so, uh, given just, where China was when we came I, I, I'm yeah. not going all monocausal on this. I don't believe that it was... No, I think it's a fascinating question, yeah. and I'm wondering what else was going on there. Yeah, anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we could uh, talk about it. And, I mean, I think we'll continue that offline. That's... Uh, yeah. It's a good topic. That, that is one of uh, Kaiser's uh, obsessions. Well, it's an <laughs> so important obsession. You, you might have a long chat about that, I fear. <laughs> <laughs> it is Speaking an important fears, obsession. Um, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of fears, Sulman, what are the fears that haunted Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao in the later years of their rule and Xi Jinping? Was it for Hu and Wen, as we imagine, you know, starting with the Facebook revolution, so-called Facebook revolution in Iran in 2009, YouTube, the color revolution? That, mm-hmm. that was called the YouTube revolution, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> but they yeah. all have the name of some American yeah. media property. <laughs> <laughs> so the internet fears, and I just confessed to Kaiser as we were setting this up that I know nothing about technology, so I'm not quite wired to 
understand them fully, unfortunately. But some of that goes back to the Jiang Zemin era. Uh, you know, Clinton talking about how the information revolution is eventually going to mean political liberalization in China. His folksy expression, you can't nail the jello to the wall. There you go. And it's surprising, perhaps, to American politicians, but Chinese leaders take what we say seriously. Mm -hmm. They actually believe it every now and then. And the interpretation is there is an American plot to liberalize us by binding us into this global system. And what we have to do is take the benefits of it without the party getting thrown over, um, which is quite an ask in which, you know, by and large, they manage. So there's that dimension to it. Fears of an economic slowdown in the who years, of course, are always present. There's two other things that are worth noting. Um, one is the military. Mm -hmm. You'll remember yeah, Robert yeah. Gates's visit and the, the J things they, they, that were not supposed to happen. Right. They, they basically tested a stealth fighter during Gates's visit. Seemingly and without John whose knowledge. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're a Chinese leader and you keep emphasizing the military is under the firm command of the party and you have to keep emphasizing that, you have to wonder just how much faith you actually have in that utterance. And that, I think, was very much a fear for who and is very much a fear for Xi. The other thing that I think is important is the environment. Um, it's the Jiang and Hu years when you begin to say, oh, these water problems might be really serious. Um, global warming might be a thing. And the Xi years, of course, see that coming to fruition. And this is one of the reasons China was so serious about the Paris Accords and was so seriously upset when the U.S. walked out of, on them. This is an existential problem. Not saying they grapple with it perfectly, they don't, but it's something that they have begun to take seriously. And that, I think, was something that you could see in the late Who years. Hmm. I, I'm curious, there, there's another book that apparently is quite influential in the Trump administration and does deal with grand strategy. It's by Michael Pillsbury, and it's called the 100-Year Marathon, uh, a lot of people have come up to me after conferences and pressed this on me and at, you know, told me how, how brilliant it is. And I I can't bring myself to read it. I've read reviews of it. I've, mm -hmm. I read Ian Johnston's terrific takedown mm -hmm. of it. Uh, have you read it? And I have read it. Oh, wow. Um, well, good for you. What, what did you think? I think it is alarmist, wrong-headed, and dangerous um, <laughs> is the yeah. polite way of putting it. We're, we're all about impolite here, though. So um, just, so well, I don't want to curse on a podcast. Um, <laughs> we can be. I think it says something. Well, and it says something about the way we typically think about China and other countries, that that kind of alarmism gains traction. Uh, there's that old Atticus Finch line about walking around in someone else's shoes and seeing right. how they feel. And I think much of the American foreign policy establishment is pretty bad at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, if the Chinese are doing something that we don't like, it's because they're undemocratic or tyrannical. Right. If the Russians are doing something we don't like, ditto. If you're not doing it our way, there is something fundamentally wrong with you. We lack cognitive empathy. We lack. We do lack cognitive empathy, yeah. which Alan Whiting, whom we were talking about, was big on. I think China is less... Even with everything we've seen during the recent past, China is less aggressively ambitious than Pillsbury book and the traction it has gained in the White House would lead one to believe. And I think it's appalling that that's a book that's gained the kind of traction it has yeah, in the policy-making establishment. So you don't see China as a revisionist power as of all to I mean, there are people who would say, it's not revolutionary, but it is revisionist in some extent. Some people see it as sort of a conditional defender of the status quo. How, how do you define China's ambitions then? To me, it comes back to securing the state, mm -hmm. um, which in itself says China's actually in some ways a very normal country. You get a normal country that's gone through this growth that wants to assert itself on the world stage now that it feels capable of doing so. You're going to get more or less the behavior with some qualifications that you see in China today. Is it a revisionist power? It depends on what you're talking about. Is it a power that's out to overthrow the liberal world order? Those things, when you start examining, well, what do you mean by revisionist? What do you mean by liberal world order? Become much more interesting than one would assume. Right. So does China have an interest in maintaining a system of free trade? Absolutely. Sure. Um, you know, they've got a pretty decent record of complying with the WTO. 
as Japan and South Korea have pointed out. Is China interested in freedom of the seas? South China Sea is a clear exception there, but, you know, they have not said they're going to shut off those places to everybody. The other interesting thing is if you wanted to attack China as the United States, you would try to blockade the South China Sea. I don't know what the military feasibility of that would be, but that would be something we would try to do. Right. Well, there are choke points. I mean, there's the Strait of Malacca. Yeah. So the fact that the Chinese are concerned about that is not surprising in and of itself. Very normal. Yeah. The aggressiveness and ambition with which they've started dumping sand into the ocean is something that, you know, Deng Xiaoping probably wouldn't have done the same way. Um, But with Xi Jinping, the personality is different, and that's something that's changed. Is China interested in abiding by international agreements? Well, they stuck with the environmental accords when we bowed out. So in many ways, it is a power that has an interest in continuing with the mores and norms that have kept the world going and kept the world going in its favor. Very good. For me, if I were to make a case for a haunted by chaos theory of China's strategy, one very important recent exhibit would be document number nine, mm-hmm. which is, of course, a, an official document that was leaked that basically tells uh, party members and academics to not allow uh, evil Western ideas of liberalism and democracy mm-hmm. uh, to circulate. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about document number nine as, as an example? of where Xi's mind is right now about the intentions of the West? Well, the first thing to say is that the suspicion of Western powers isn't new to the Xi era. Um, If you think about, we've talked about the imperial past, the Taiping Rebellion is a Western idea in some ways. Christianity coming to China, taking on a really weird guise and provoking the bloodiest civil war in history at that point. If you think about Jiang Zemin's response to life after Tiananmen Square, one of the things Jiang does that's really interesting is he says we have to bring ideology back, not as something we necessarily believe in, but as a shibboleth that tells these young people that running around and preaching democracy and the gospel of the West isn't something that's fitted to China. Rightly or wrongly, he believes that. If you think about Jiang's take on Xinjiang, incidentally, which is really interesting, he says, you know, religion's not going to go anywhere. Uh, it predates the party, and we can't get rid of it. There's something deep inside human beings that sometimes wants something to believe in. What we can't have is foreign preachers running around preaching ideas that go against the party in the state. So we have to bring Islam into compatibility with the state. So the suspicion of outsiders um, hasn't gone anywhere. And then, of course, we were talking about the Internet and what Clinton meant by it. Does the United States intend to democratize China? And again, the party taking what we say seriously is not really that surprising. Right. Um, if you know you get pieces in foreign affairs saying the fundamental problem with China is that it's not democratic until they liberalize, without very clear definitions of what liberalization would look like, life cannot go on the way we want it to, then being suspicious of foreign powers and Western influence, as Document 9 suggests, is quite understandable. I mean, I would turn the question around and ask, you know, it's very easy in some ways to say, here's how China reads the West. What do we want from China is actually a much more interesting question. And having answered, you know, what does the United States want from China asking if the situations were reversed, would we accept that kind of, this is what's on the table? How would we feel about that? That seems to me to be a conversation worth having. We still don't know what we want from China. Right, right. Let's let's talk about the way in which you describe Xi Jinping as both a continuity of this, he's clearly, you know, very much of the haunted by chaos mm-hmm. uh, strategy, the strategic mindset, but in the way in which his policies have backfired. He's been overzealous in, in, in his flexing and his saber rattling, uh, his belief, apparently, in your words, that to maintain itself as a great power... He has to act like a great power. How has that backfired on him? I think in many ways the contrast for me was the what would Deng do question. Right, right. Um, If you ask how Deng Xiaoping would have handled relations in the South China Sea, Deng's actually on record as saying, look, my guarantee of a secure neighborhood is my neighbors feeling secure. So whatever I do, I don't want to terrify them. Right. Um, 
Vietnam's the great exception to that. But barring that and dealing with the Philippines um, and dealing with other countries, kind of wants to reassure them. Well, even Vietnam, after that, that clash in March of 88, things went better. Things went better. Dung never actually talks to them. He's right. um, very upset about it. It's an interesting moment. It's almost as if things haven't gone wrong. This is not something I want to mess with. But he with leaves them alone. Yeah. I mean, there are some shellings across the border, but it's yeah. almost perfunctory right now. But if you look at the relations with the Philippines, for example, they're almost warm. Right. Um, you look at what Xi Jinping's doing, the tone is very different. And that, of course, is going to terrify people. Dung wouldn't have had his foreign minister at Asia or wherever it was saying, we are a big country, you're all small countries. Dung would not have done that. Dung is a big believer in not practicing great power chauvinism, as he would have called it, because it's counterproductive, not because Dung's a nice guy, because there's no point to doing that. If you think about Dung's ideas for how to deal with Hong Kong, Dung says, I'm not going to destroy what made this place special. There's room in China for one country and two systems, the two systems being emphatic. This has worked for Hong Kong. In working for Hong Kong, it's worked for southern China. Why would I go mess with that? Um, Again, not because Deng's a nice guy, but because that's just silly. Um, If you think about the way Jiang Zemin, to take a later example, deals with Xinjiang, there's room for a little bit of give. Every now and then you'll have an episode, but that's the cost of holding on to this place. Versus she's, this is an unacceptable threat, and I have to incarcerate every single person I'm suspicious of. Um, It's a very different model of doing things. And in that, it has become counterproductive. It's almost something that's so logical and so rational that it's bereft of common sense, which aren't often terms we think of logic and common sense in, but there you have it. Um, The counterproductivity comes in because if you're going to be that aggressive militarily, you will terrify your neighbors the Japans, Vietnams, and Indias of the world into upping their defense spending. And then all of a sudden you're stuck in a defense spending race that might tax your economy much more severely than you bargained for. If you want to get that heavy-handed in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang, you are going to generate a backlash that is going to necessitate more insecurity spending, again taxing your economy. If you are going to get that heavy-handed in your dealings with Taiwan, you are going to provoke a backlash there. And that, I think, is the great counterproductive aspect of it. I agree, I agree. Is Belt and Road part of Xi's overzealousness, part of this overreach, and how does it fit into Chinese grant strategy? That's a great question. It's one I'm asked very often, and... I'm still at a loss as to what Belt and Road actually is. It's been so many different things over the years that I've kind of lost track at this point. Let's just pretend that it's just Chinese money and engineering doing stuff in the world. That is where one comes down to, right? Right. It's Chinese money and engineering doing stuff in the world. There has been Chinese money and engineering doing stuff in the world um, since the Mao era, more or less. Uh, The Tanzania-Zambia Railway being, of course, the shining example of this. Hu Jintao, actually, I think was the person who first said when he was talking about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, these are the countries of the old Silk Road. Sure, yeah. um, so, you know, if who could do something, she could do it even better. So it be- old Silk Road becomes new Silk Road, becomes one belt, one road. And you start looking at, there's an official website for Belt and Road, and you start looking at it. And basically every Chinese trade deal or investment deal under advisement is on it. Yep, it's all uh, shoveled under it now, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump, I believe, was offered one belt, one road monies to fix American infrastructure, as he promised to do, which, you know, riding the Boston subways is not the worst idea in the world. <laughs> um, to my mind, this is a natural consequence of a country that has reached the economic heft and weight that China has taking an active interest in the world. There might be a dial back, as you're beginning to see now, as some of the risks of having Pakistan or Zambia own your debt becomes, owe you money, become more apparent. We're recording this a day after there was an attack uh, on the Chinese consulate in Karachi. So with Belt and Road, that seems to me to be just, this is foreign direct investment, this is trade, this is infrastructure. What are the risks to China becomes more interesting. If you think about the Soviet Union during the Cold War, uh, the fear during the 70s was the Soviets are taking over the world. Um, They're lending money to everybody. This is the way of the future. 
And there were a couple of people, George Kennan notably, making the argument, it'll do them good to wrestle with the problems of other places and see how hard it is. Um, I would worry if I were Xi Jinping and were in charge of a port in Kenya and all of a sudden had to run it. I would worry if I had engineers getting shot by local Baloch in Pakistan as I'm trying to run Gwadar. Um, these are things that Belt and Road comes with that, to my mind, are extremely dangerous to Chinese security long term. That's right. Jer Jeremy has argued exactly the same thing. Yeah, uh, th that's terrific. Listen, uh, I could talk to you for another hour about all this stuff, but uh, our time is precious, So, uh, and I know that yours is too. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with us. Let's move on to the recommendation section of our show. Uh, before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Syndicate Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you enjoy the reporting, the columns, the quizzes, the podcast conversations, and all the rest of it, the best thing you can possibly do to keep us going is to subscribe to SubChina Access. For just a couple of bucks a month, you can really keep up on all that's happening in China. You can enjoy discounts on free admission to our events, uh, some of them anyway, and chat with our editorial team on our Slack channel. So tell a friend, sign up, and uh, thanks for listening. Uh, on to recommendations. Jeremy, it is our, our tradition that you begin, and so why break with that? Okay, I've got another one that uh, people who don't have small kids will uh, not probably be interested in, but a kid's author. They're kind of graphic novels, but really great for six-year-olds. Uh, Nathan Hale is his name. I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. <laughs> is that right? Is that the quote? What's that? Nathan Hale's famous quote, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. I'm, I don't know what you're talking about. I think this is a different Nathan Hale. This is not the Nathan Hale spy for the American revolutionaries? No. Oh, that Nathan Hale. Oh, I sorry. I wasn't Nathan even Hale. thinking of that. <laughs> My American history is uh, obviously very rusty. Uh, uh, no, no, a completely different Nathan Hale. Maybe it's just because I'm in Boston <laughs> and I'm just feeling it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Same name. Okay. So what's, what's this Nathan Hale? Kids book author. And what's, what's he done? What's his thing? A bunch of different books that are really wonderful for six-year-olds. Okay. They're kind of like graphic novels, and they're fun for adults to read. Oh, okay. All right. Nathan Hale. All right. H-A-L-E. Same, same guy. Sulman, you've had an hour to ponder. What do you have for us? Well, being inspired by the suggestion of children's books, um, and since we've been talking about grand strategy... I'm going to make a plug for Richard Adams' Watership Down. Oh, oh great book, yeah. Um, lots of grand strategic wisdom there. Uh, General Woundwort is probably the best way of understanding Xi Jinping that I know of. Oh, wow. Where did I see somebody talking about that Just on Twitter? Somebody had made some comparison. That Watership Down. Anyway, it, yeah. the idea was that Watership Down was sort of instructive for understanding China. And it that, yeah. is very instructive for understanding China. It's, it's very instructive for understanding how sensible planning can work. And it's beautifully written. Oh, gosh. I, I have not read that since, really, I was maybe 12 or 13 when, when I read it. I'm going to revisit it. Fantastic. Uh, it's one of the things where the, the whole parable was lost on me. Um, I'm going with a couple of books. I... I read in sort of obsessive waves and one of my obsessions after after New Zealand killings uh, was about white nationalism in America uh, so I, I read a book called Vega uh, by uh, a Norwegian writer named Vegas Tenold who uh, implanted himself really with he sort of Im embedded with a couple of, of pretty prominent white nationalists. I, I can't remember what they're called, the, the, sort of the American Workers' Party or something like that, but there's a National Socialist-type organization. The book is called Everything You Love Will Burn. And uh, mm. the other book that I read was by a woman named Kathleen Ballou. It's called Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. Where she, she's really, um, she is, it's a little bit, I mean, it's a great book. She's a little hits the idea that uh, it's all because of Vietnam a little too hard, but she really does a terrific history of white nationalist movements uh, beginning in the 1970s and leading all the way up to the Oklahoma City bombing, the Timothy McVeigh bombing in 1995, the Murrow building. Uh, so really terrific book. I would r highly recommend both of them. Uh, the, the Vegas 10 old book, Everything You Love Will Burn, is extremely readable. The Kathleen Blue book is a little more scholarly, but it's it's also quite good. Uh, so I recommend both of them. I think it's very timely that we, we understand these guys. Uh, anyway, Solomon, so great to have you on. It was a really fascinating conversation. Pleasure being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 
Jeremy, man. Good. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank you, Solomon. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Jeremy. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Tyson Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, Ta for Ta, and the brand new Middle Earth Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.